This podcast is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S.co. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Hi, Scott. Bernard, how are you doing? I'm well. Hey, where are you based now? I'm in Hong Kong right now. Today, I'm talking to a very interesting person because he has written a lot of interesting articles about how companies enter into China. The person I'm talking to today is Scott Livingston, Senior Associate at SIPS, an intellectual property and IT consultancy based in Hong Kong. There's a very good reason why we are speaking here and actually it's through a common friend of ours who's also a recurring guest on the show, Josh Horwitz. Scott, I would like to get to know you better. How do you get started in your career? How do I get started in my career? So my career has been pretty much all focused on China and how I got focused on China was as an undergrad, I started studying Chinese. I had a language requirement and I wanted to do something difficult. That took me on a study abroad trip to Beijing in 2001. And it's now so long ago, but like 2001 Beijing was an incredible time. They had just been awarded the Olympics. They were about to get into the WTO. They'd qualified for the World Cup final. There was just this really just amazing energy. It was still a really small city. At the, it was only 12 million then. It's 20 million now, but it was 12 million people at the time. I just loved it. It, it was just so exciting. So I, I went back to school. I was at Boston University, graduated in 02, and then I came, you know, a week later, I was back in Beijing. And I spent three years there and then went back to law school at the uh, University of Texas at Austin. You know, just to make this short, I started in New York originally. The great financial crisis came. The firm I was with, very notoriously, I won't mention their name, but they got rid of about their entire first-year associate class. And so I thought, okay, well, this will be a good opportunity to go to Asia maybe a little earlier than we were intending. And I did the ICLP program in Taiwan for a year. Then during that time, I was reaching out to lawyers, and that got me introduced to a lawyer in Beijing named Robert Lewis. And he had just left Hogan what is now Hogan Levels, to start up an international practice group at Zhonglun. And he took me on board, and I worked with him for a little while. About a year into it, there was a position open at the American firm Covington & Berlin, and he recommended me for that. And so I went to Covington, and I spent four years there. And, you know, it was great, but Beijing was ultimately not livable because of the smog and everything else. And so, like pretty much every other Beijing expat, I made the move down to Hong Kong, which is... Uh, a great city and I couldn't be happier to be here. I guess it's very interesting to hear experience from people from the US moving to China. So what's the experience like living in China? Well, Beijing, I think, is, is very unique. Probably every Chinese city has its own story. But Beijing is it's an incredible city, but it's also a city that's hard to love. And it's kind of like being in an abusive relationship. So, you know, you'll have three weeks where it's nothing but smog. And then you'll have a week when you won't even have that much. You'll have three days of really beautiful weather. And you'll just be like, wow, I mean, this, this city is gorgeous and it has so much history. It, it sounds trite, but like, you know, the history and the culture and the food and everything else is just incredible. And the, the people who come there, I think the expat scene in Beijing, it's, it's, there's a lot of people who are really doing their own, you know, opening their own businesses. And that scene, you know, I was working for a big law firm and that really, really wasn't that interesting. You know, people were, were doing things on their own that I just found tremendously fascinating. And, and that was something that I really took away from Beijing and I think kind of informed the way that I looked at my own law practice. You are trained as a lawyer and have worked in various law firms. What are your areas of coverage? Yeah, so my work is about, it's, it's about half and half. Half is uh, corporate regulatory and there I kind of focus on Chinese technology and data privacy law. And then the other is on the IP side and there we're doing trademark registration and enforcement. 
and a little bit of copyright work as well. And re- really what this means, because, you know, you tell people you're a lawyer sometimes and they have images of it, whatever TV show is popular at that time. What we do is it's more like consulting work, really. Uh, we advise company on their China operations, and that could be designing a market entry strategy that could be advising on problems that a company is facing in China. A lot of work that I do is also, you know, reading new policies and laws and then telling businesses how they're likely to affect their businesses. So, you know, a new law is passed. There's various media reports about it. Our clients will call us up and want to know how that impacts them. I like being a lawyer out here in in Asia and China, you know, specifically, because the scope of what we do, I think, is much broader than what I imagine a typical lawyer would do in America, where you're focused on one, you know, very narrow niche industry. I have a bit of a niche with technology and data privacy, but I also advise on other matters as well. And that's something I think that every is fairly common with most China lawyers to one degree or another. And for a Chinese lawyer, you have actually written in various publications, including TechCrunch too. So, but before that, what are the interesting career lessons you have learned so far? There's one idea that I think that has come across and I've been kind of trying to get it out there. I've been trying to popularize it. And this is if you're a business that's going into China or you're going to partner with a Chinese company, I think one of the most important things you need to understand is how much Chinese policy affects both what you're going to be able to do in China as well as how a Chinese business partner sees you. So I think in America, we tend to overlook this because in America, kind of the rule of law, what's in the laws is what's most important and government policy doesn't really affect us. But in China, you know, China does have a rule of law. But it also has the party and the party, many would argue, and I think I think it may be in the Constitution, the party exists above the law. And every actor, whether they're a businessman or a government official, to them, what's important is, you know, yes, you need to follow the laws, but you also need to stay on the right side of the party or the government. And to do that, you need to follow policy. So, you know, China has these five year plans. The 13th just came out at the uh, March Lianghui. What these five year plans do, you know, they set up these you know, far reaching targets and all Chinese businessmen and officials know to really look at these plans, to understand how they affect their particular industry, and then to work together with those plans. If you're a businessman, it means if you're in an industry that's being promoted, then you're actually going to have an easier path than you may have if you didn't, if you weren't one of these promoted industries earlier. So that's something that a lot of people, I think, overlook. They particularly overlook it when they're negotiating with their Chinese partners, because they may view the Chinese partner as its own company that's just interested in annual revenue or profit. But in fact, their motivations may be something that's different than that. It may be obtaining foreign technology or obtaining foreign know-how. They may be willing, in fact, to take an economic loss in order to have that gain. By understanding the policy, you put yourself in a little bit of a better position to understand that. And so that's something that, I, that I've kind of learned over, particularly at Covington, which is it's a D.C. firm. It, it really focuses on trade and policy issues. And it really gave me that education. But it's not something I think I would have automatically learned had I been practicing in America. Although maybe I would have, I don't know. That's interesting. And the reason why I got you here today is our audience is going to understand how are we going to get into the actual topic that we're going to talk about. But we started off from a question. We actually have a prior conversation previously about this topic. And we thought that it was so interesting. Then we decided to get into it and do a podcast episode on this. So the question that we wanted to start off with is is what needs to happen for Facebook to enter China. So to give a little bit of context, recently Mark Zuckerberg has been criticized for his approach to China as contrast to Travis Kalanick from Uber. And there was an article on the information that discussed their approaches. And of course, the most important reason for Mark Zuckerberg's interest in China is that Facebook is totally banned in China. And he's trying to figure out a way of how to access 
that one billion market. But also bearing in mind that a lot of Chinese internet companies are actually buying ads on Facebook outside of China to get their internet services used by the global world out there. So the, as an introduction, one of the things that you and I probably would both agree is that the way how the media was looking at the Zuckerberg approach to China. So I wanted to start off with the first question is that hypothetically, what are the requirements that Facebook really need to satisfy in order to for the Chinese government to allow them to operate in China? Right. So yeah, we discussed this previously. And I, I think one of the things that came through on the call, one of the reasons that I like this topic is, is that Facebook is really good. Because by talking about Facebook, you really bring up a lot of the issues that are facing most tech, tech companies when they're looking to China. So getting to your question, the answer is we don't know. We don't know what criteria Facebook will need to satisfy. And the reason we don't know is because right now China is really reassessing how it regulates the internet. And I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit further, but the basic point for now is that a lot of laws are being rewritten. A lot of new laws are coming online. And so the overall environment is one that's fluid and it's changing. But what we do know is that I think there's three things we can expect uh, if and when China decides to enter China. So first, it's going to need a VAT, unless China scraps the system, which it doesn't look like they're going to do. It, it's going to need a VATS license. And the VATS license is the value-added telecommunications license. I'll go into all this in a little bit more detail. I'll just say what the three criteria are now. So one is procure the VATS license. The second, they're probably going to have to base all of their data within China. That'll probably be their China user data, not their uh, global data. And then the third is that we can expect that Facebook will have to modify some of its services to whatever the government requests. And that will probably include some type of internal content monitoring to ensure that all content posted is in accordance with Chinese laws and regulations. So that's also assuming that Mark Zuckerberg gets enough necessary amount of government support in order for Facebook to enter based on that three conditions that you've just talked about. Can you go in depth into them, each one of them? Yeah, sure. So government support, of course, is going to be the main factor because that's ultimately what's going to turn this decision. The main thing is this VATS license. And this this is kind of a complicated area, and I don't want to go too much into detail. But summarizing it is Chinese law requires a social media company like Facebook to procure this VATS license. Under Chinese law, you technically should be able to get it to obtain it with the Chinese partner. But in reality, not many foreign companies have, have been able to obtain it. So usually what companies do is they go in through what's called the VIE structure. And this is where you have a overseas company, which you control. You set up a local company in China, which you completely control, 100% foreign-owned. And then through a series of contractual arrangements with a 100%-owned Chinese company, you're able to use the licenses. So the Chinese company has the licenses, and you essentially borrow them via contract through your 100% wholly foreign-owned entity in China. The VIE structure has also been used by Chinese technology companies when they're going overseas to list on foreign exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, Sina is, is one example in particular. Can also be gone by joint venture, for example, with what Yahoo did with Alibaba a, a few years ago, right? Right. So it, assuming the government is willing to provide you with the requisite licenses, you could go in as a JV. It's just, it's questionable if that will happen. Now, the one asterisk I would put on all of this is that there's a new all-encompassing foreign investment law, the Foreign Invested Enterprise Law. That's currently being drafted. They released a draft version of it last year, and it's probably going to be fully promulgated next year. And one of its provisions sought to crack down on this VIE structure. Now, I think this is, this is a, a prediction of mine, but I think that when the new FIE law comes out, it will probably have an opening to foreign technology. We already saw that with e-commerce companies earlier this year, where they opened it to 100% foreign investment. I think that that opening will, will increase with the law 
And then China also has a tendency when these kind of major regulations come out, they look for kind of a flagship entrant that they can point to to really show the importance of the new law. And my, my prediction is that will be Facebook. But again, that's just a prediction. We'll have to revisit it. And under the new FIE law, it is actually there's a possibility with a, what is called a wholly foreign-owned enterprise, which is what's called the Wolfie. Is that the case? Well, so Wolfie is, is one form of foreign invested enterprises that a foreign investor can choose to set up in China. It hasn't been used for technology in general because of this issue with the licenses. There is a possibility that under the FIE law, that license issue will go away and Wolfie will be able to get all, all of the necessary licenses, but that's still up in the air. The second thing that Facebook needs to fulfill is local data storage. I guess the important thing is, what does that mean? Is it just only putting data in the servers locally? Like for example, instead of putting in Amazon Web Service, I put it in Aliyun, or is it just more than that? Well, both AWS and Microsoft have uh, joint cloud ventures in China. IBM may as well. I'm not quite sure about that, though. So it's possible that they, they could do it through those joint ventures. They could also do it through Aliyun. Data localization, it's, right now it's only required for a few types of data. So, for example, medical or financial or mapping. But this data localization in general is kind of a, a trend in Chinese laws and regulations. And there's a number of draft laws out there right now which when they come online will likely require it for most companies in the technology world. And then China, one of the things I worked on at Covington, just to add to that real quick, one of the things I worked on at Covington was a comprehensive look at how China regulates foreign investment, both through laws and also kind of through extra legal means. And what we mean by extra legal there is how they condition foreign investment on, on an ask, you know, so we'll let you come in, but you have to store your data in China. Now, that's not always the ask, but there have been times where there's been that kind of quid pro quo to be able to operate. So whether by legal means or by a request, data localization is probably going to be a uh, requirement. Does that mean also for localization of data also means that the data is accessible by Chinese authorities? Well, people say that and, and then they, they leap to the worst case scenario. Data will be accessible by Chinese authorities, but to the amount of access that Chinese authorities will have will, is really no different than what we see in America and England. England is currently contemplating a bill which I believe would give police and, and state intelligence units more access to citizens' data than anything that China is requesting. But we already have this. So it's, it's, this is kind of an interesting story because about 10 years ago, there was a big uh, fuss or brouhaha over Yahoo handing over email records of, um, I, I believe, I think it was a Falun Gong dissident. But this was pursuant to a legal request, you know, essentially a legal subpoena or warrant. And, you know, at that time, I think we Maybe we took human rights issues a little bit more seriously, but, but it was a big issue in the West. But now we have some. Google has been really good with their transparency in discussing how many requests the government makes for Google stored information. And, you know, the numbers are huge. The numbers are huge in every country. Get back to your question. Yes, by having your data within China, you leave yourself open to government requests for data. But that's true in every country. I mean, obviously, the difference is, is that China's political system is not a democracy. And there are concerns about the fairness of rule of law. But the same can be said for other countries as well. And the last condition is actually the changes to service offerings. I think that's a very interesting case that you wanted to talk about with LinkedIn being in China, right? Yeah, not so much on LinkedIn. But so when LinkedIn went in, the Chinese government as a whole is kind of very concerned about social media companies because of their ability to, you know, for user generated content. And when you're a country with 1.2 billion people having their, let's just say they're concerned about it. So when LinkedIn went in, my understanding is that they disabled certain of their content sharing features. And that was to appease the government and satisfy government requests. And I have to imagine that Facebook is going to have a, a similar type of restriction, but I don't know what that's going to be. And I, I think, another, you know, another question is, 
is Facebook China going to have, you know, will it only be Chinese users or will it be open to the rest of the world? So for instance, you know, China has this popular uh, Tencent app, uh, Weixin or, or WeChat. If you use it in China, if you're friends with someone who's outside of China, you can talk to them, but you can't discover anyone who's outside of China. If you use uh, WeChat outside of China, the fir- I remember the first time I did it, I, I think I was in, I, mean, I, think I, I think it was in America. And I saw that, you know, you could, you could do the shake feature or like the throw the bottle in the ocean feature, which if you haven't used WeChat, that makes no sense to you. But if you have, you know what I'm talking about. And, and you could talk to, you know, people in the Middle East or in Africa. And you can't do that in China. So, there, you know, there's a distinction between the local and the overseas uh, service offerings. And I think we'd likely see that with Facebook. It's actually interesting that you mentioned this because when I changed my settings from English to Chinese, I actually get access from the outside world to WeChat users in China much easier. Oh, yeah? Yeah. One important question probably what we have to ask is whether Facebook is going to be just Facebook, the social network, or could it also include things like Instagram, Oculus, and WhatsApp too, right? Right. Yeah, thanks. I meant to make that disclaimer. When we talk about Facebook, I think we generally jump on the idea of, you know, Facebook, Facebook Facebook.com. But of course, Facebook has a number of other operating entities that could find success in China. You know, Oculus, I think, probably has the, the greatest chance of success. Instagram, a little less. But you know, there are certainly other Facebook properties, which, you know, may be more likely than the social network to be welcomed into China and to be able to operate in China. I'm very curious to know what is the Great Firewall of China, which actually is well known for banning most internet services from the West, do in order to serve the interests of the government? Yeah, well, the, the Great Firewall is, is the big blocker of foreign content. So, you know, technically, a lot of companies, they could set up a website overseas and then deliver their content into China. And many do. But they do so at the risk of being blocked by the firewall, which can happen at any time. And also there's some connection, latency, and just general speed issues that the internet in China is is not the fastest in the world. Let's, let's just say that. But the idea behind it is basically, you know, it's twofold. I, I think this kind of goes to the question of why is Facebook not able to operate or why is Twitter not able to operate in China today? And there, I think there's two main reasons. So the first is that when it was first blocked, it was around 2007 or 2008, there'd been a lot of protests in the far western provinces of uh, Xinjiang and uh, Tibet. And China was worried about the capability of these protesters to use Facebook and other social media to organize. And then, you know, following the Arab Spring, that was that fear was really confirmed. You know, in the Arab Spring, we saw the small scale protests, which then blossomed into very large scale protests, which ultimately toppled multiple regimes, which is China's greatest fear. One reason they have the firewall in place is just because they're concerned about anything that poses a threat to social instability. And then I I think another reason, which was probably more true about 10 years ago and is less true today, is they were concerned that some of these really established Western tech firms might pose a threat to their own, the, the development of their own technology firms. So by having a Facebook, we won't have a local company who can do this. That's contentious, but it's happened in other industries as well. Now you have companies like Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, JD.com. There's so many growing Chinese technology companies, and they're really world-class. I think, you know, three of the top 10 largest, the the bats, are Chinese companies. So that that need to protect infant industries isn't isn't really there like it was about a decade ago. But those, I think, were kind of the original motivations for putting the firewall in place. One of the interesting things that you have recently written in some of your articles is this Beijing's newfound embrace of a policy called cyber sovereignty. 
Can you go a little bit into more detail on that? Yes, this is so. This gets a little bit. It's a little bit complex and in the weeds. So I'll try to just kind of give the, the most basic summary of it. If we're looking at China and how it regulates the internet, there's been this really dramatic shift that happened around 2002 and 2014, and there were two reasons. So one was I don't know if anyone remembers this, but there was this you know well publicized crash of one of their high speed rail in Wenzhou, and Chinese citizens were able to use social media, generally WeChat, to spread stories and pictures of this crash. And this really put the internet on the on the leadership's radar. Of course, it, it it had been because of the you know the protests we described before. But this was something that they were really concerned with, and they began to crack down on content and on people who had a lot of influence. You know, like the so-called Big V commentators. That all I think originated with this crash, although it developed, it germinated. Over time, and then the really big one, though, without a doubt, the biggest factor was the revelations of Edward Snowden. And after that, the Chinese government said, "Okay, hold on. You know what's going on here with the internet? We need to get on top of this." And so, what they did was twofold. The new administration of Xi Jinping set up a small leading group headed by President Xi. Previously, the Chinese internet, you know, it took some top-down direction. But it was mainly a bunch of separate ministries who would regulate it. Mainly the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, or MIIT, but also you know the, the Publishing Ministry, SARFT, and the PSB, the Public Security Bureau. After she came to power, he basically centralized leadership in the small leading group, and then he took this kind of underutilized body called the, the State Internet Information Office, and he rechristened it the Cyberspace Administration of China. And now the CAC is basically the coordinating body for all the ministries below it. So, in effect, what's happened is is the internet is now a priority of China's leadership, and it, it's something that and th- and this is behind all these new laws that are coming out. This is this is why this is one of the reasons we're hearing so much about Chinese technology, and it's overall kind of the biggest reapproach to China's internet governance that we've seen in probably 15 years or since the early days of the internet. And then how cyber sovereignty flows into this is this is this idea they have that a national government should be free to regulate all content being transmitted within its borders. Which all governments do to a certain degree. China just wants to do it a little bit more. You know, everything that is is transmitted in China, you know, should have the blessing of the party or in one way or the other. And this is a policy idea that came about from the first meeting of that small leading group I just mentioned. And then they've been trying to popularize it on the world stage ever since, and tried to make it an international norm. And that in itself is its own little battle, but that's basically cyber sovereignty. So they actually also give it in speeches during like World Internet Forum or even UN delegation. Right. So Xi Jinping had two speeches in uh, 2014 where he mentioned it. China has hosted this thing called the World Internet Forum twice or World Internet Conference twice over the last two years. And at the first one, they they slipped a declaration under the door of every attendee, and these were, these were attendees from some of the largest uh, technology companies in the world. Declaration gets slipped under the door at midnight. Says. We need you to sign this and get us back, get it back to us at 9 a.m. And one of the provisions in it was this pledge to uphold or to support this idea of cyber sovereignty. So obviously, everyone kind of looked at it and was like, you know, I'm not going to sign this. And they didn't really mention it, so they just kind of ignored it. But China Daily, actually, the next day, still had this article on the like I don't know if it was front page headline, but they had this you know very prominent article saying you know world leaders support cyber sovereignty. But in fact, no one had really signed the pledge. What are the strategies used by the Chinese government to build a policy called Internet Power, which is mentioned in one of、mm-hmm. your articles? And then I think it's actually meant to regulate the internet with focus to ensure cyber sovereignty, cyber security, and promoting economic development at the same time. Sure. So Internet Power and Cyber Sovereignty are both articles I've written for the website China File. So. If you are incredibly interested in the weeds policies, please please check them out. Internet power is something that's kind of come about over the last six months, and it's this idea. Internet power is a translation of a Chinese term. It could also be translated as 
internet strong nation or internet superpower. And what it is is something of an umbrella policy that encompasses a lot of kind of separate policy trends. So one of that is China has something called Internet Plus, which is essentially taking the Internet of Things and applying it to Chinese infrastructure, Chinese government affairs, basically all facets of Chinese society and the economy. It has a manufacturing plan called, I think, China's Manufacturing 2025, which is an attempt to upgrade their current manufacturing base and, and to, you know, a little bit more of adopting higher technology processes. There's cyber sovereignty, I think, is another aspect of Internet power. There's just a number of, of things that are being, you know, separately undertaken. But they all kind of blend together under this general idea of, okay, look, now we're paying attention to the Internet. This is something that Chinese enterprises really have the chance to play one of the leading roles in the world. And we need to promote that. And we need to spur innovation at home. And we need to encourage our companies to go abroad, which you know China has been doing in many industries for the last decade. And so it's, it's something that is often paid lip service to in party speeches and in party writings. But we'll see how it plays out over time. And also there's a lot of changes in the China internet regulation as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, anyone following the news has, has seen, it seems like every month a new article comes out talking about how such and such China regulation is, is going to change the game. And, you know, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's a little overstated. But what China is doing right now is it's basically rewriting a lot of previous regulations. So just last week, a new regulation on Internet domain name came out. Now, that regulation was first drafted or first promulgated in 2003. This is its first update. Last month, a new regulation for online publications came out. That regulation was also published in 2003. This is a new one, you know, kind of updates it with the times. And then, then surrounding these kind of regulatory updates, let's call them, are, you know, kind of broader laws like the anti-terrorism law the cybersecurity law, the national security law. And the laws have, you know, wider effects. They may require things like a national security review. There's this idea that foreign technology in certain sensitive industries must be uh, secure and controllable. I think a kukau anchuan is the uh, poorly pronounced Chinese. And, you know, that one aspect of, um, among many of some of the technology-focused provisions that are found in these regulations. But the overall attention is also to basically promote innovation in this recent 13 five-year plan, right? Well, yeah, innovation is part of it. Innovation is, you know, just when the great financial crisis hit the U.S., then you saw really the explosion of, of U.S. startup culture and, and kind of the Silicon Valley alert. And a lot of Chinese have been overseas, they've been studying it, they buy into that, that ethos, you know, it's, and it's kind of, it's hot, it's a cool thing for them. And China realizes, look, we have a slowing economy, we have this manufacturing economy, we're trying to transition to a service economy. What are the things that are going to help us realize the China dream? What are the things that are going to keep this economy humming and provide jobs? And they see that answer, I think, really from America's experience with startups during this kind of great recession. I'm not sure how we're calling it these days, but startups created a lot of jobs for young college graduates in America after the financial crisis when there weren't a lot of jobs. China wants to do that and, and China thinks they can. They may be right. So coming back to the original question we started off with on Facebook, what are the conditions for Facebook to get into China? Then I want to flip the question over. I know that Apple and LinkedIn have been very successful in China. So how do they manage to do this? I mean, the alternative question could be what makes a successful technology company from the West in China? Yeah, succeeding in China is, you know, it's funny because you look at Amcham surveys and I think it's like 67, 70% of companies say they're making, they're making money in China, you know, and some of them, you know, a company like Ikea is just making money hands over fists, but it's never easy. And, it, it, you know, it's always a challenge for companies like LinkedIn. So I, I think I heard it best. There was a tech in Asia had an ask me anything, an AMA with Ray Ma of uh, 500 startups. And someone asked a very similar question. How can we be successful in China? 
And her response was, okay, look, there's two things. So one is if you have a global brand. So that's something like Uber. So Uber is a company, it's worldwide, it's new, it's been able to kind of promote this narrative that, you know, Uber is innovation, Uber is, is this Silicon Valley ethos. And China's citizens, China's youth, China's emerging middle class, you know, they travel the world now. You know, they go abroad and they see Uber and it's a cool thing. And it's also someone that distinguishes them as part of this class. You know, it's a class signifier. So it's, you know, Uber has such a strong brand name that it's able to succeed, whether or not it's succeeding in China is an open question, but it's able to compete in China at a very high level. And then a company like LinkedIn. So her second answer was you either have a brand effect, really popular brand, or you have a network effect. And LinkedIn is an example of a network effect. So LinkedIn, it's something that a Chinese company can't really replicate. You could have a Chinese company emulate every, reproduce everything that LinkedIn has, but they're not going to have the network that LinkedIn does of foreign professionals and foreign companies. If you're a company that has that, it, it, that has that kind of network that can't be reproduced in China, then you can also succeed. So those are two things. I think there's one more. So those answers kind of looked at it from the consumer perspective. What are things that a company can have that will make it successful with Chinese consumers? And that's very important. But I think above all, what's most important is what is something that a company can have that makes it successful with the Chinese government? And ultimately, that's are you helping China? So LinkedIn is doing that because, as I just said earlier, China has to secure employment for 1.2 billion people, you know, or 900 million people or however many. And LinkedIn helps them do that. Uber is a bit more of a tougher case. You know, anyone who lives in Beijing knows how bad, how hard it was to get a cab. The transportation situation in Beijing is really difficult. And Uber in Beijing and many other cities has helped alleviate that. If you're a company, and again, this goes back to this policy idea. If there's something China's promoting in the five-year plan and you can provide that, then the doors are going to be open for you a little wider than they would be otherwise. There's a corollary to that. And the corollary is if you're doing something which is potentially harmful to China or, or seen as potentially harmful as China, then you're going to face a tougher time. And really, when we get down to it, that's the situation that's facing Facebook and that's facing Twitter. I think they want to have those companies in China. They want to be able to show that it's an open market and that technology is welcome in China. But they're scared of what social media is and what it can do. And that's something they're trying to overcome. Then what about Apple then? I mean, as a consumer electronics company, you have so many Chinese national technology companies like Huawei and Xiaomi. Well, yeah, there I think that really kind of goes to more of IP concern. So Apple, again, is one of these that has a great brand. So, you know, Apple is able to get in with the brand, with the idea of Steve Jobs as a visionary. Yeah, I was living in Beijing when Steve Jobs died. And for the a year afterwards, and I assume it was the same in America, but for a year afterwards, the level of interest in Apple and Steve Jobs and really what he represented, it was, it was huge on the mainland. So Apple was really able to succeed from that. The companies you mentioned, you know, that it's Chinese competitors who should not be overlooked. For Apple, you know, their main concern is on one hand protecting their IP, which they obviously know how to do, but on the other is market positioning. So a company like Xiaomi has been able to come up producing really low-cost smartphones that are accessible to a lot of the Chinese populace who maybe aren't at that middle-class level. And they've been tremendously successful there and they've been able to leverage that success and to further success in emerging markets in Africa. Southeast Asia and elsewhere. So it all depends. Again, it's it's hard to succeed in China and, and Apple's competition in China is, is difficult as well. With the global ambitions from Chinese internet companies, how do they deal with the strategic tax and better access to information from the outside world? For example, the Chinese firewall blocks out information that might be crucial to the economy or important to the company. So the block is actually not helping the Chinese companies in order to be competitive globally. Yeah, there was a there was a New York Times article on this today. Um, 
Well, it wasn't in the paper. I think it was their like China beat, but it, it was on the new domain name registrations and this fear that it would block foreign websites, which I don't think it does. But there's definitely obstacles for Chinese companies because of the firewall. I can I can tell you, having worked in Beijing most recently these last four years, I mean, there would be times where my work was slower and sometimes impossible because I didn't have access to things I needed to have access to. You know, that's something that academics in China face and that's something that China's domestic companies face. And the issue there is really, you know, China wants, I think, really has good intentions for its people and they they want to achieve that China dream. They want economic success, you know, they want to be able to not have famine and poverty. And, you know, these are all laudable aims. And they, they see the way to do that. They, you know, they see the path to do that. But ultimately, to get there, it requires giving up a level of control that they're not comfortable with. A really good example is last month, SARFT, which is radio, TV, and film regulator. They passed regulations on what could be on a Chinese TV series. Now, China is always trying to promote its soft power. They really want to be like Korea is, where everyone around the world watches, you know, Korean drama or listens to K-pop. Well, China want, you know, China's like, look, we got 1.2 billion people. We have 5,000 years of history. Why can't we do that? You know, and there's no reason that they should. But these new regulations came out and they banned basically everything that you find in a successful TV show. You know, they ban criminal activity, they ban drinking or drugs, they ban any kind of romantic relationship that's, you know, not someone in a man and woman marriage or, you know, like they ban puppy love, which is young teen love or something like that. And it, you read this entire list and you look at it and you just, you think, you know, how are you going to achieve soft power if you place this type of restriction on your artist? And you think about what TV shows are popular in China, like outside of the Big Bang Theory, Chinese citizens like to watch, you know, House of Cards or Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones. Like these are all TV shows with a great deal of crime and cussing and drinking and drugs. And it's I don't think it's made them successful, but it's helped the stories have a level of complexity, which draws attention. And unless China can give up control in this area, as well as in other areas, they're going to have a hard time meeting a lot of their aims. And that's what we see with the firewall is just, you know, one example of that. We want these companies to go global, but we're not even giving them access to the things like I think like GitHub is blocked in China. You know, so you want innovation, but you're not letting your developers have access to GitHub, which is just that doesn't make any sense. I guess this is going to be a continuing story <clears throat> because they're going to rewrite policies over the next five to ten years as well and i think it's still an evolving story for how chinese government is going to think about these things am i right to say that yeah i think definitely and i mean it, it bears worth watching i mean it, my life and career are centered on china so i i probably overestimate the importance of these things but china is the world's largest internet market by both population in terms of online sales this is something that's worth paying attention to even if it's not you know even if it's not your main main focus we're, we're seeing a lot of change now and we're going to continue to see a lot of change over the next few years and for me it's always fascinating and i just hope you know other people find it fascinating as well and I think that the question that we originally started off give us a lot of ground for thinking about how to access into China for tech companies. And I'm sure I will get you back at some point in time to talk about some other interesting developments in these regulations. So, Scott, help my audience. How do they find you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter, uh, Scott Livingston, but the uh, Twitter is like the uh, at sign SCT. Livingston, L-I-V-I-N-G-S-T-O-N. Uh, LinkedIn, just, you know, Scott Livingston Sips. You should be able to find me. Or you can find my writings, uh, Scott Livingston, China File. That's, I don't want to say my name again. That's that's basically how you find me. It's Google. And I definitely will put on the links to some of the articles you have written. And in fact, actually, I learned a lot about online publishing rules in for foreign media in China and also cyber cyber sovereignty in internet governments from the Beijing government. So Scott, many thanks for coming on the show. You can find me at bleongcw or bernaleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y 
S-E, Asia, A-S-I-A. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or SoundCloud. And of course, tweet to us and give us feedback, upvote us in Product Hunt. And of course, give me some good ratings on iTunes. So once again, Scott, thank you very much for coming on the show. All right, thank you.